For Pacifica Radio, July 24th, 2022, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com. And I'm the editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 interviews, really, going back to 2003, all at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. All right, introducing this week's guest, it is Antiwar.com's opinion editor, Kyle Anzalone. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you doing? Doing great, Scott. Thanks so much for having me back on. Uh, very happy to have you here. And of course, tied for first place in the worst things in the world with Yemen is the war in Ukraine, uh, which America is very much a co-belligerent in, legally speaking and factually and morally speaking as well. And there's just so much news coming out of there every day. And you and all the guys at Antiwar.com are doing such a great job of helping keep track of it all. So can we start with the good news? Is it right that there's a deal now to get that grain out of there and to the global south where people are going hungry? It, it does appear so, Scott. This is from Turkey. So uh, officials from Ukraine, Russia, and Turkey are supposed to meet in Istanbul uh, today as we're recording July 22nd. And Turkey says that they are going to sign an agreement that's going to allow uh, a lot of grain to start to enter uh, the, the rest of the world through the Black Sea, the, the Ukrainian ports and the Russian ports, and you know anybody who's been unable to export from there, the, you know the, this grain is going to start coming out. So this does seem like really good news. Okay, and then, so what's been the holdup actually here? So pretty early on, a month or two months ago, myself and Will Porter wrote a story for the Libertarian Institute uh, about Russia saying and Turkish officials saying that, you know, they were open to this. Russia said that they would give the ships safe passage. And that meant that the outstanding issue was the Ukrainian water mines. And Ukrainian officials said that they weren't going to engage in these talks. And so it does seem like uh, Kiev must have finally come around to engage in talks. And, and that's what had this uh, finally take place. Mm. And. You know, I don't know if you have any idea of metric tonnage, this or that, but is there any way that you can give us some kind of ballpark of how much food has been held up and how much of effect that's already had on people who normally would be importing it? I come to understand that, in fact, one of the poorest and because of American foreign policy, one of the most famine stricken places on the planet right now, Yemen, some of the food that they were getting was coming from Ukraine and they've not been getting it. And I wonder if you have other stories along those lines. Yeah, well, from the Middle East, I, I had in my uh, news roundup for the Libertarian Institute that Turkey said uh, they thought it would free up 22 million tons of wheat. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Yemen there. There's an excellent new article out from uh, Hassan Al-Tayeb on how important it is to, to put some pressure on right now. And so uh, I know there are numbers, I think uh, one 
a three, three, uh, stop war. And, uh, yeah, cause that, as you said, is so important. And right now is the time to push, uh, on Yemen because of that ceasefire issue mm-hmm. and, you know, even freeing up this grain may help Yemen a little bit, but it's going to be negligible compared to, you know, the major problems that are going on. Right. And, you know, the news there is that Senator Sanders and a few others have introduced the war powers resolution in the Senate. So as you mentioned there, 833-STOP-WAR, that is a group called Demand Progress, runs that phone number there. And what it is is they'll just forward you right on to your congressman or your senator. You just put in your zip code, and the robot takes care of the rest and makes it real easy. And if you go to 1833-STOPWAR.COM, they have a few talking points for you there too. So um, check that out, and thank you for mentioning that. It's so important we have a ceasefire And we have a war powers resolution in both houses. And so we have an advantage to press. But, of course, the leaders of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are a problem on this, probably especially the Republicans. But the Democrats are in control of both houses, so it's up to them. But they have more than 100 co-sponsors in the House. There's real momentum behind this if people will keep up the pressure. And I was on a conference call, Kyle, with some of these anti-Yemen war activists And they said that the House staffers had told them, please, more phone calls. It really helps when everyone's calling all at once, right? Not just old man yells at cloud, but when tens of thousands of us are all calling Congress at the same time and saying this is so important. And in fact, as Hassan Tayeb mentioned to me, for people who are already co-sponsoring it and already pledged to vote for it, they could use a word of appreciation, too for sticking their neck out on this important issue. So thank you so much for mentioning that and giving me the opportunity to rant all over your Ukraine interview with this Yemen stuff, because this is the most horrible war in the world, and it's one that we are very much responsible for. Obviously, America's involved in Ukraine, but Russia was the one who sent their armored divisions across borders in this one. But the war in Yemen, this is made in the USA for the last seven years straight, and really even longer, but still um, the worst part of it in the last seven years. And hundreds of thousands of people have died. And so, as you say, Ukrainian grain or not, ending the war, not just a ceasefire, but a real peace deal is the most important thing that can possibly happen for the people of Yemen. And so people, seriously, it's not much effort to just make a couple of phone calls and let yourselves be heard on it. 833-STOP-WAR is the number. 833-STOP-WAR. Okay. So now, sorry, um, back to your interview. It's Kyle Anzalone. <laughs> at antiwar.com. And so I was wondering if you can give us an update on the battle lines. I know that uh, you're not keeping the closest track of that, but uh, some of this stuff is uh, kind of broad enough by its definition that we can cover it. For example, am I right that the Russians claim to have control of all of Luhansk province in the northeast there, and then some very large percentage of... um, Donetsk. And and then I read that they have now announced that they're expanding their war goals, which is not a surprise. But can you tell us a little bit more about that, uh, the status of the forces in the field as to your best understanding and what it is this new announcement entails? Yeah, as you say, uh, Luhansk, I think two weeks ago when I was on the show, Scott, it was first announced that Russia had had control over that. But there, you know, of course, there's always still some fighting going on, counterattacks. 
uh, you know, people who had embedded themselves and then carry out attacks once Russia takes over. Things like this are going on, of course. Uh, and then they've kept up operations in the Donetsk. Uh, there's been reports of some pretty significant airstrikes uh, going on in Ukraine or missile strikes uh, targeting uh, various uh, officials and meetings and, and things like that, and potentially a meeting where they were planning uh, the next sh- uh, what kind of weapons Ukraine would want, like it, it, in the front battlefield for the for the next round of shipments. And so there seems to be a lot of you know fighting going on. Uh, although I haven't read in the last two weeks about a whole lot of territory changing hands in the Donetsk. Uh, maybe a little bit more in the south, especially as they continue to push uh, west towards uh, Odessa, that they have made some gains. Now, as you mentioned, I think the big news here, Scott, is the announcement from Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, uh, who said this past Wednesday that Russia's goals in Ukraine are now expanded beyond the Donbass region. And of course, Russia had taken territory already outside the Donbass region, uh, the, the territory north of the Crimean Peninsula in, in south of Ukraine. But it seems that Lavrov is saying that they're going to expand this probably like outside of uh, the Luhansk area as well. And I, I had kind of speculated that this was always going to be the case, that Russia was going to take more territory. And so, uh, you know, this may be just an excuse that, oh, the Western countries are providing more advanced weapons than we anticipated. So this is now we're going to go and take more territory. However, there's probably uh, some military and uh, you know, technical advantages to taking more territory now that Ukraine has longer range missile launchers. Uh, maybe they feel they need to take this territory in order to be more secure in the Luhansk and Donbass regions, which uh, and Donetsk regions, which they really want. Mm-hmm. And now, so he says here, he mentions Kherson and Zaporizhia, I guess, something like that. Um, now, I know where Kursan is, and that was already on my list to ask you about in a second, but I'll ask you the second thing first. Do you know where this other region is that he's talking about there? I believe it's also one of those uh, regions in the same area north of the Crimean Peninsula. Uh-huh. And so for people, you know, to picture in your mind's eye here, Kursan is northwest of the Crimean Peninsula, and I'm not quoting anyone else i could be wrong about this but just what it looks like on the map to me this is sort of the new orleans of the Dnieper river right this is the last major port city before this river empties into the sea and it's you know if you look at the map there it's not far from there to odessa and even and then from there from odessa on to moldova and to romania is not much further and so, you know, they've already taken control of, it looks like, more than half of the southern coast, if you count all the Sea of Azov there to the east of Crimea. You know, the longer this, um, this war continues, America fighting to the last Ukrainian against their Russian foes here, seems like the Ukrainians have more and more to lose all the time. Uh, you know, they could have negotiated a long time before they lost Kherson. Now they're going to lose Odessa too. And they're going to lose their access to the Black Sea entirely, as it was in times past, where Russian territory, you know, took the whole coastal region there. It's a hell of a fate to see them suffer. And uh, I fear for the people of Odessa too. It'll be a hell of a fight for that city. But uh, 
All right, now, Kyle, let me ask you about the situation there in Kaliningrad. Everybody pull out your map and look at the Baltic Sea there in the north. There's this little strip of land between Lithuania and Poland that is Russian territory. And the Russians have a railway that runs through their allied state, Belarus, uh, that then runs through Lithuania through this corridor, a, a railway anyway, to Kaliningrad. And so then the Lithuanians had put restrictions on this travel, saying that they were enforcing EU sanctions on the Russians. And the Russians started balking about that. And this has been, to anyone with an eye for it, what they call a frozen conflict, an unresolved problem with this strip of territory, uh, Russian control, you know, behind NATO lines from their point of view. And so it seemed like it could be a real flashpoint, but there have been developments on that story. So I wonder if you could fill us in on that, Kyle. Yeah, this uh, this is another piece. Uh, it seems to be good news. The European Union announced plans to ease some sanctions on Russia. And then I believe uh, along with the, the sanctions they are easing up on Russia this week, they also said uh, that the EU is going to uh, say that as long as there's not arms, any the uh, sanctioned goods can be transported by rail through Lithuania. And so it, it does seem that we have uh, some good news coming from the European Union on the sanctions and relieving this uh, issue just a little bit. Yeah, that's good. And now by the EU, does that mean Germany? And does that mean that they've got some opinions wavering about the status quo of this war at this point? Yeah, I mean, it seems that somebody within the European Union must really realize that there has to be a long term resolution with Russia here. And at some point, you know, these things will have to be worked out and preferably without war. And so that I, I imagine that's the thought process. I'm not exactly sure which all officials, but Lithuanian officials initially seemed very committed to this. And so I'm guessing it wasn't Lithuania that was uh, decide to ease up on this. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there was a flashpoint much like that started world war two, the dispute over German access to the port city of Danzig. And, uh, so as you say, very good news to hear that they are, um, you know, seemingly the Europeans are trying to figure out a way to avoid that same kind of crisis this time, at least for now. So what can you tell us about, um, I guess two kind of double prong question here, the weapons the Americans are sending and also the politics of the sending of these weapons in the United States. Is it just full scale consensus in both parties, at least the leadership level of both parties to continue this thing on? Is there any kind of controversy over what the Biden administration is sending other than maybe the cries that they're not doing enough and sending more weapons? Yeah, so it, it does seem that we're sending more weapons. Uh, this week we in, they announced they're sending four more of the HIMRAs to Ukraine. These are the American-made artillery systems with a range of about 50 miles. Russia has demanded several times that the U.S. not send these systems, and we have continued to do so. I believe it was Mark Milley who said this week, but the Pentagon did announce that they have already delivered the other 12 systems. And they claim, I'm not sure why we would believe this, but the Pentagon is claiming, at least at this point, that none of those systems have been destroyed by Russia. And so I guess it's possible maybe they have 
haven't entered the battlefield, but if they have, I, I would assume Russia's probably trying very hard to target those systems. And so I'd be very surprised if they haven't taken out any of them. And then we also have this plan coming out this week. U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown Jr. said that the West is working on a plan to train Ukrainians on Western fighter jets. And the Ukrainians have asked for F 15s and F-16s. So uh, I think that's probably what the, you know they're going to plan on uh, giving to Ukraine, but it, it's not exactly clear yet what, what kind of fighter jets, but they are starting to train the Ukrainians uh, on those systems. Uh, and that is, I believe, a part of the NDAA that they're about to pass Congress. That's the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the Pentagon funding bill. I think it's clocking in at well over $800 billion this year uh, coming from Congress, including this aid to Ukraine. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Green Mill Supercritical is the award-winning leader in cannabis oil extraction. Their machines are absolute top of the line. They simply work better and accomplish more for less than any competitor in the world. We're talking anywhere from a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the base model and up. So this is for serious business people here. But the price, as they say, will be worth it. Green Mill Supercritical customers' investments pay for themselves oftentimes in just weeks. Simple enough for almost any operator. Deep enough for master technicians. Their new novel techniques for inline real-time winterization are leaving their competitors in the key. That's GreenMillSuperCritical.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level, and it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Man, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in the past they had talked about, well, maybe we'll give some F-15s and 16s to Poland or to some other, you know, Eastern, former Eastern Bloc countries who can then give their old Russian MiGs to Ukraine, something like that. But now are they really serious? Like this is already in motion that we're going to give F-15 Eagles and F-16s. They already are training on them and they're handing these over to the Ukrainians to use in dogfights against the Russians. It seems Congress is going to authorize it through the NDAA. I mean, it hasn't finally passed Congress yet, but at this stage, it's very unlikely that they're going to take out any kind of uh, hawkish, uh, you know, it's right. going to conference committee. So this is usually when the bill gets a, a lot worse from our perspective, yeah, not exactly. better. And then if you, you know, but you now is the White House saying anything about that? That, yeah, that's right. We're going to put Ukrainians in the seats of F-15s over there. Well, I mean, this is uh, the the guy I quoted, uh, General Brown Jr., is from the Air Force. So I would assume, you know, Pentagon is executive branch and that they're they're on board with this or at least looking at the possibility and, and seriously considering what Congress is doing. Yeah. Um, 
Well, yeah, but that's you, certainly the kind of thing that could escalate into a real war very quickly. I mean, already, you know, even in the New York Times, they go, well, the lawyers say we're co-belligerents. Yeah, we're, so we're co-belligerents in the war. I mean, imagine if the shoe was on the other foot for a minute here. If during, say, the height of Iraq War II, Vladimir Putin was openly backing the Sunni insurgency against us. You know, the way the Saudis were, our, our good allies. And they had just been bragging about it and saying, yeah, our whole goal is to bankrupt and destroy America and lead to regime change in Washington, D.C. and all these kinds of things. Think about how America flipped out when the Democrats and the FBI and the CIA just pretended that the Russians had intervened at all in the election of 2016, which is a complete hoax that only idiots believed. But so many idiots believe that about turning this country upside down. And it wasn't even true at all. What if Putin was really on TV saying, that's right, I'm backing Al-Qaeda suicide bombers against you because I'm trying to destroy you the way the Americans talk about Russia in this war while literally sending in, as you're talking about, long range artillery, talking about giving them fighter bombers and the rest of this stuff. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and Congress is 100 percent on board for this and actually seems, uh, I mean, to be more hawkish than the White House at this point. Not only is Nancy Pelosi planning to go to Taiwan seemingly over the objection over Joe Biden, uh, but they're pushing new legislation now to name uh, Russia as state sponsor of terror that's coming through Congress. Uh, there's a bill that will say the war in Ukraine is a genocide being carried out by Russia. Uh, there's a lot of more funding and support for Ukraine within the National Defense Authorization Act. The House passed a bill this week with only 18 no votes. And while the House doesn't have to vote to ratify treaties, it expresses approval for Finland and Sweden joining NATO. And then the Senate is going to vote on it, I believe. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do it today or next week, uh, but we already have heard that th this is definitely going to pass. Even Senator Rand Paul is going to vote present on this. Uh, he announced in a uh, the American conservative op-ed, uh, which is very disappointing. So the lone no vote actually may be Josh Hawley on that. Uh, it's kind of a <laughs> depressing state of affairs in Congress, Scott. Completely nuts, man. Um, and now this whole thing. Oh, the Russians are guilty of genocide and supporting terrorism, huh? When every other week on this show, we're talking about America's genocidal war for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen the past seven years, that according to the UN and their extremely conservative numbers, has killed more than half a million civilians. Oh, but anyway, it's uh, everybody else guilty of what the Americans perpetrate. It's just the most blatant thing in the world. It's completely ridiculous. Well, in the best example, of course, is Syria, where Russia is supporting the, the Syrian government, Bashar al-Assad, who, you know, not some a dictator I would like to live under, but at the same time, uh, he is not genocidal like his ISIS opposition uh, that's been supported by the U.S. for the past 10 years. And so to label Russia a state sponsor of terror, why there's still al-Qaeda stan in Idlib, Syria, that the U.S. and its NATO ally, Turkey, are at least preventing, uh, if not aiding, the resistance there uh, is a real problem. Yeah, you got that right. And you couldn't make this stuff up. It sounds like, you know, conspiracy quackery. 
But yeah, no, America is blatantly and outright on the side of Al-Qaeda in Syria. Just we have been since 2011. And in Yemen, as we have been since 2015. It's just as simple as that. Everybody knows that. Uh, here's another headline that I saw that you uh, pointed out in your news brief here. It's uh, Kyle Anzalone from Antiwar.com. And you mentioned that they admitted the CIA, I guess, says, was it even the chief of the CIA says, ah, we were just kind of bluffing about Putin being sick and dying and all this stuff, which they must have put out a hundred stories about that back a couple of months ago. Can you fill me in there? Yeah. So uh, it was William Burns, the head of the CIA, who answered a question and basically just dismissed the claims and, and said, I, I think his actual statement was something along the lines of Putin is unfortunately healthy, uh, which actually seemed to be more of an endorsement of Putin's health than I was expecting. I, I would assume they say, oh, we can't substantiate the rumors or something like that. But yeah, so that I thought it was worth pointing out in the news roundup just because I don't know how many people I talk to that don't follow foreign policy uh, as closely as I do who ask me. They're like, so you know, how, how's Putin doing? I, I hear he's in bad health. And then there were a couple of times under COVID where he had these photo ops like uh, with Emmanuel Macron, the French president, where he's sitting an absurd length away from him. And you do wonder like, oh, maybe Putin has a heightened sense of COVID, uh, fear of COVID because, you know, he has cancer or something like that. But at least according to the CIA now, there there's nothing to that. Hmm. Um, yeah, it seemed like it was part of the talking point that, geez, what could possibly explain the completely irrational actions that he's taking? Condoleezza Rice, of course, famously went on TV and said, well, geez, he's not the Vladimir Putin I know. I think maybe he has some kind of mental illness now. Maybe he has some kind of physical illness. People said, oh, this is his legacy. He's about to die, so he has to rebuild the Russian Empire on his way out and all this. Because they just don't want to admit that they picked this fight and got these poor Ukrainians into this mess and are helping to keep them in it quite deliberately. Um, and in fact, so how about that for our last uh, subject here? From before this war even started, they talked about it like, of course, Russia's going to destroy the Ukrainian military and it'll be an insurgency. And we're going to back that insurgency as long as we can. And yet uh, here the Ukrainian military still stands to a degree. Uh, hasn't gotten to the insurgency point yet, but they keep talking about that, right? Do you have examples of people in and out of government talking about how long they want to prolong this war to hurt Russia? Uh, I, I mean, how long? It's hard to say. I guess just until there, there's a change or Russia is weakened to the point where they no longer fear Russia, I really think it's more dependent on Moscow than it is a particular timetable or defending Ukraine. Mm. I mean, if you you know look at the situation, you say it hasn't folded into an insurgency yet. But I but just mean it, that the White House and you know the Defense Department and so forth, they keep saying that, right? That they want the war to continue on as long as possible. Yeah, I mean, they they're I guess maybe not that bluntly, but they're saying that they don't want to engage in negotiations and they're going to continue to provide military support to Ukraine. And so, I mean, that is the the de facto statement coming out of the White House and the the Ukrainians. Uh, I, I've read multiple reports this week and the past couple of weeks from, you know, mainstream sources, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, talking about how these uh, Ukrainian units are just absolutely depleted. Uh, 40, 60 percent casualty rates in these units. And then 
people talking are the Ukrainian military put down a new decree that if you're, you know, a military aged male within, uh, you, uh, you have to register with like the head of your county uh, conscription board in order to just travel outside of your county that that's now illegal. And so it seems that they have a pretty strict draft going on in Ukraine uh, to try to feed this meat grinder on the front line. And it, it's, it, you know, they're, they're talking about 500 to 1000 casualties a day for the Ukrainian side. Yeah, you know, that's why I really dropped the ball in my debate with Kathy Young in New Hampshire, Kyle was, uh, she said, No, the people in Ukraine, they love the war, they don't want to quit. And the obvious response to that should have been, well, their democratically elected president wanted to negotiate and the British and the Americans stopped him. And on top of that, they got conscription everywhere. And so if the people want to fight that bad, it seems like the people would include the fighting age males. No, but they have to be enslaved and forced to fight. And that kind of calls into question right there just how popular this war is. You know, I think of the Ukrainians as essentially, well, from the point of view of the Americans, they're just extras in our movie, right? They're, they're, their job is to help bleed the Russians, help weaken the Russians. In fact, I even read a story where, remember, Biden had released a statement, essentially, or they had leaked this story. Biden has chastised his Secretary of State and Defense for saying two hawkish things about how they want to destroy Russia with this war and weaken Russia with this war. And then they leaked another story about a week later saying, yeah, but that still is the policy, though. But we just wanted to put that out there for some kind of thing, which was obvious at the time anyway. But, um, you know, when you have it from the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense themselves, that, yep, our goal here is to do everything we can to prolong this war to hurt Russia. I think uh, that's one of those things that you believe people when they show themselves to you kind of deal, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think Kathy Young mentioned this in uh, your debate with her. And then this also, we are on a panel, myself, you, uh, Dan Midnight and Barbara Brom at Freedom Fest. And this guy came in at the very end to ask, uh, uh, you know, clearly by his question, but he said 92 percent of Ukrainians support the war. And I wish I had, you know, gone off on this right away. But, you know, Ukraine's a country now that has disbanded its opposition parties, nationalized the media, and the Associated Press embedded itself with a Ukrainian police force that was going around and interrogating and arresting citizens who had made you know, what they deem to be posts too favorable to Russia on social media. And so it's not very hard for, you know, Zelensky or uh, General Al-Sisi to get a 92% approval rating for whatever they want to do when you round up all of your opposition. Yep. Simple as that. All right. Well, listen, we're out of time, but thank you so much for your time, everybody. That's the great Kyle Anzalone, opinion editor of antiwar.com. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again, Scott. All right, you guys. And that is Anti-War Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton, editorial director at Antiwar.com and editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Find my full interview archive at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash Show. I'm here every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.